Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, August 19th, and today Julia Alexander is here to talk about some fuzzy math coming out of Disney Plus as the streamer boasts about rivaling Netflix for subscribers and revenue. And it is Friday after all, so later on, Alex Bigler is going to sit down with Puck executive editor Ben Landy for another round of Feedback Friday. They dive into how a Puck story gets made and Ben's recent contributions to this podcast. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everybody. Uh, I hope everyone out there is preparing to celebrate my birthday on Sunday. Uh, thanks for joining us here. Uh, I'm joined today by Julia Alexander, my new full-time colleague at Puck. How are you doing, Julia? Thanks for uh, coming on the pod. Good, good. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I am great. Um, I would like to tell the audience, if you haven't heard, Julia is writing a new newsletter for Puck called What I'm Hearing Plus, which is a play on Matt Bellany's newsletter, What I'm Hearing the plus there strongly suggests you're going to be writing a lot about the streaming industry in particular, mm-hmm. uh, but also I, I feel like you're you're like our Nate Silver, like you're like a little more into the the data and crunching the numbers. So I, if you're into that, which you should be, everyone should sign up for what I'm hearing. Plus, are you are you liking it so far? I'm loving it. That was also like the greatest introduction to me ever. I'm just going to bring you around parties with me. That's awesome. That was the nicest thing anyone's ever said. Thank you. Oh, okay. I'm a good wingman. <laughs> Well, I do want to talk to you, speaking of streaming and the data Mm -hmm. uh, this Friday, about Disney Plus and Bob Chapek, who is their CEO. Chapek recently announced, to much fanfare, that Disney Plus now has 221.7 million streaming subscriptions, beating Netflix for the first time, beating Wall Street expectations, boosting Disney stock by nearly 10%. You wrote a piece about how this is, to use a phrase from Al Gore, fuzzy math. Do they really have 221 million subscribers at Disney Plus already? So this column ended up being a column about semantics because I think semantics are extremely important in understanding and prefacing how we talk about success in a streaming age. And success in the streaming age is still being agreed upon across Wall Street, across the entertainment industry, across journalists. And so for the longest time, the metric of success that the street used, which is why Netflix had a stock of $700 at one point. The reason that Netflix had this $700 stock price was because it had a pretty strong subscriber base and was growing you know, exponentially and then incrementally at a rather sustainable rate. So when all these other companies were coming up in streaming, everybody looked at subscriber numbers. So when Disney announces we have 221.7 million subscriptions, a lot of the headlines that run with this, which Disney you know, didn't necessarily say no to, they rode this wave of, of strong PR. They said Disney has 221.7 million subscribers. And the math behind this gets complicated because unlike Disney, Netflix doesn't have a bundle. Netflix doesn't really have an annual plan to to bring people in. Netflix operates month to month, one subscriber equals one subscription for the most part. If we look at Disney, the big, you know, glaring asterisks when we talk about them and their subscription count and their subscriber count is that Disney often double or triple counts a subscriber. They pad their subscribers because of the bundle. So let's think of it in layman's terms. If you sign up for Netflix, you are one subscriber 
subscriber, and that is one subscription. If you sign up for the Disney bundle, you are technically counted as three subscribers because you have activated three different subscriptions. But it doesn't matter if you don't use ESPN Plus ever, or if you don't really use Hulu, you're still counted within that subscriber number. You're still counted within that kind of active subscription. You know, the reason that we talk about the semantics of success in the streaming industry is because we're moving away from subscriber numbers to revenue. And if we think about the Netflix model where one subscriber equals one subscription, that is relatively easy revenue math to understand. With Disney, it gets a lot more complicated because three subscribers under one different bundle does not necessarily mean they're generating more revenue than Netflix, even if that number is getting to be higher than what Netflix boasts. So I have an SAT question for you. If like, I subscribe to Hulu, I was able to bounce into ESPN Plus because I pay for Spectrum Cable here in LA because I like watching sport ball. And then I don't subscribe to Disney Plus. So is Disney Plus counting me as a sub based on my use of two of those three platforms? Yeah, and I think what we really have to call out here is that there are multiple ways to subscribe to multiple Disney products. If we think about this in terms of retail almost, there are multiple SKUs that Disney has for across the streaming. So if you're someone who signs up for Hulu and ESPN Plus individually on those two different ways, you know, Disney's going to count you as a subscriber individually to Hulu and then to ESPN Plus through your area or whoever it might be that you're, you're coming in from. The issue that really becomes prevalent with Disney is we know that Disney is selling the bundle above all else. That is what they're pushing. I've heard from people who work internally that the number one thing that Disney is focused on within streaming is that bundle. And why is that? Because if we look at the success of streaming, it comes down to two things. Subscribers, because that equates to revenue, and churn, because churn also equates to revenue. Now, Bringing subscribers in is a value question. It is what is the perceived value of this product that you're selling and is the price point a fair price point to ask people to come in at? And churn gets a little bit more difficult because churn is, okay, how do we keep this consistent value going month after month, a year after year when there's all this competition? If we look at Disney's various churn rates across its streaming services, you know, ESPN Plus is a little bit high and Hulu is a little bit high. Um, Disney Plus, it's about 5.6% according to Antenna, which is a research firm. And that's, you know, about industry average. But if we look at the bundle as a whole, the churn rate is the lowest in the industry. It's 2.2%. So not only is Disney bringing people in and, and kind of, you know, boosting those subscription numbers, but it's also saying, well, we're retaining these customers. We're able to really pull in revenue from them. Now, the reason, again, that I wrote this was because we don't know how many subscribers across the board are coming in from the bundle. We don't know how engaged they are with their products. And I want to say, like, this isn't just a Disney issue. You know, in the last um, Warner Brothers, in the most recent, I should say, Warner Brothers Discovery earnings, we had David Zaslav and his team say that they had to rejig how they reported their subscriber numbers because AT&T was including people who were eligible for HBO Max, but never actually activated or engaged with the streaming service. So it's a really difficult thing to count. It's not an accurate subscriber count. And so at Disney... What I really would love to see is more transparency across the board amongst how it views its subscribers. So like your point, Peter, like as someone who's coming in for Hulu or ESPN Plus from a carrier, how does that differentiate in their mind and then the revenue from people coming in from the bundle? Because we also don't know what the average revenue per user is with someone in the bundle. We don't know what that allocated ARPU looks like. And so there's all these questions that come up about the very basic math behind success in streaming at the Walt Disney Corporation. There's all these asterisks that we have with the way that Disney reports that we don't necessarily have with some other companies like a Netflix. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about like tech companies and, and 
back in like 2015, 2016, like Facebook and Snap and YouTube and like everyone had like a different metric for what an ad view was. Like Facebook's was absurd. It was like if you watch like one second of an ad, it counted as a view and then they would turn around and like say to Coca-Cola, like your ad got a bajillion views as a pre-roll or something. And it's like every other platform had a different metric to report. And like, it was up to Wall Street to interpret what was good and what was bad. And like a bunch of people on Wall Street are fucking morons anyway. So like, it was like, (laughs) I don't know. It was just like, whoever could like sell their narrative the best was winning. And I think like that, you know, that's the game of earnings in general, right? Like that is every company does this. They figure out the best way to, to control the narrative when they're, especially if they're a public company. But I also think when we talk, the the reason that we're talking about this now is because we are seeing the narrative move from subscriber growth alone to revenue. And also a lot of these companies are coming in at a point where although the cable system is is dying off and it's not declining, it's not, you know, going to die off next year. Like it's declining, but it's still profitable. And if we look at streaming, the profit margins that we're seeing for streaming that we may always see for streaming are nowhere close to the profit margins of cable. And so there's this really big question from shareholders, from investors, from journalists, and from people within the companies themselves, you know, how successful from a straight revenue perspective and profit perspective, which at the end of the day is the only question, is streaming at this point over the, and over the next 24 months you know, compared to what it was within cable. You know, I think that's why we're now seeing this narrative really, really change. Um, the last thing I want to ask you is you have a talk back with Dylan Byers that you just published. Um, and he asked you about hedge fund activist Dan Loeb, who took a $1 billion stake in, in Disney and is pushing JPEG to spin off ESPN and then merge Disney Plus and Hulu. I feel like we've been talking about the possibility of spinning off ESPN for very long time in media. Is that realistic? One, would they be spun out of Disney? And two, like, would ESPN be a standalone company? I feel like unlike CNN Plus, like ESPN is something that a lot of people would definitely pay for as a standalone, or would it be like acquired by a larger company or streamer? I think I said to Dylan in our conversation, this is my favorite question, right? It's what does Disney do with ESPN? And if they were to spin it off, it would be its own independent company, but with strong ties to Disney, this would not be Disney spinning off a company so it could be acquired by a competitor. And I think if we look at what ESPN is for Disney and what ESPN will be for Disney, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do this. I mean, ESPN right now is part of the reason that alongside parks is part of the reason that Disney can continue to invest pretty heavily in streaming at a loss. You know, their last quarter saw an operating income loss of $1.1 billion. That was an extra $300 million in losses compared to the quarter um, before it, if I remember correctly. And so you're looking at this really, really big spend that's happening because they have to, to really succeed in, in DTC and direct to consumer. But they don't have to worry about taking on this massive amount of debt because they have ESPN, because they have parks, they have this very successful businesses that generate strong cash flow. But we also know that, again, the cable bundle and cable in general is declining and we're going to hit that point eventually where it shifts and suddenly streaming is the predominant way that people are viewing all of their things. It's not just cable in these 75 million um, homes in the United States alone. But we also have Bob Chapek saying on the last earnings call that they have a plan to offer a standalone ESPN eventually. You know, I think I told Dylan, my bet would be two and a half to three years is when they launch that. Someone pays 25 bucks or 30 bucks for ESPN and they go there. There's this 
belief amongst a lot of investors that because ESPN is, would be successful now, ESPN alone as a standalone company would be successful in three to four years. But if we think about how the sports rights and sports media landscape has changed, even over the last half decade, it's really hard to say who has the advantage in the next 18 to 24 months. Amazon is now a major player in baseball and football. Apple is definitely wants to get into more football. They're a player in baseball. You have the leagues like the like NBA with NBA League Pass going into their own DTC route because they want to control more customer data so they can sell merch or they can bring people into live games. Um, You've got the RSNs, the regional sports networks who are doing their own DTC thing. The sports media landscape is inherently fascinating because it's changing at such a rapid pace. ESPN is still a big part of that. And I imagine ESPN will continue to be a big part of that. But you also have Bob Chapek and co now going up against companies like Amazon and Apple that are willing to spend three times over because they can do it because they're going to sell iPhones and dog food. So they don't have to worry about finding the money for it. So I think, you know, could ESPN be be sold off? It's certainly a possibility in the sense that everything happening right now is a possibility. Will it? I sincerely doubt it. Yeah, that's a really good point you made. Like the rights issues could not be great for ESPN down the road. Right now, it's great for big games, I guess, but you could also turn it on in a few years and just get like Mac football game between like Central Michigan and Akron or something, you know? Exactly. I would encourage all of you to sign up for Julia's newsletter, What I'm Hearing Plus. If you enjoyed this conversation, you will definitely enjoy that. Um, And subscribe to Puck because here at Puck, subscribers and revenue are the same thing, aren't they, Julia? (laughs) (laughs) They are. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. All right. When we come back, it's Feedback Friday with Alex Bigler and Ben Landy. Welcome back, everybody. This is Alex Bigler, and I am here for another iteration of what we like to call Feedback Friday. But considering I, I actually have not really shared much feedback in the recent episodes, I might consider uh, changing the segment name. So if you have any thoughts or feedback on that front, feel free to reach out to Fritz at Puck.News. All of that to say, I am here with Puck's executive editor, Benjamin Landy. Hey, Alex. I've been waiting patiently for weeks for my invitation to Feedback Friday. So this is a real career highlight for me. It's true. Ben and I actually sit next to each other at work. And uh, every time I kind of skulk off to go record my podcast segment, he asks when his turn will come. Finally, you, you convinced me that you should have the spotlight on Feedback Friday. So welcome. Here we are. Fire away. I think one of the things that I want to start off with is, you know, a lot of people call us Puck News. It's not who we are. We are just Puck. And I think that's kind of an important differentiating factor because we're not here to just talk about the breaking news of the day. We're here to really bring new insights, perspectives, and a different lens on the conversation. So what I really wanted to get your point of view on is what makes a Puck story? Yeah, that's right. I think we have a really different way of thinking about journalism and what we're delivering to readers For starters, we don't really have a newsroom in the traditional sense. We have journalists and we're partners in this business together, but we don't think about the news as necessarily scoop-driven or divided neatly into beats. So we have journalists who are really domain experts who can explain the stories behind the stories in their worlds. So Dylan's background, for instance, is as a media reporter, and he'll break news about CNN, like the fact that Chris Licht is going to be the next CEO of the network, which is a huge scoop. 
But what he really does that's so extraordinary is he'll really talk to everyone in the industry. And I mean, I mean, it's incredible to watch him at work rolling calls while his phone is lighting up with text from like all of the biggest players in his world. But then what he really does is he, he, he goes back and explains what these stories really mean. So what is the fear inside the company? What does this move pretend? Those are the questions we're really interested in. And that is an analytical lane that I think traditional media companies are less comfortable with. They, they're more buttoned up, more just the facts. And we're trying to deliver something that's a little bit different, both news and scoops, but also a really informed analytical view of these worlds that you can't get anywhere else. So I've listened in to some editorial conversations that you guys have had, and I would love for you to tell our listeners what the process is from sort of ideation or, hey, what are you, what are you hearing these days, all the way through to publication? Like, how does a puck story get made? I don't think there is one way that a puck story comes into the world. I mean, we, we often talk with the journalists once, twice, three times a week. We check in with them. And the conversation usually starts off by just asking them, like, what's going on in your world? What are you hearing? Of course, that was like the name of our landmark property that we launched with, which is Matt Bellany's What I'm Hearing newsletter. But it's really in some way the defining ethos of what we're doing and what the relationship is like between editorial and each other writers. And the answer is different for everybody. And sometimes it's a piece of news. It's a piece of gossip. It's something percolating in that writer's world that we ask them to research more, to make calls on. And other times it's an idea about something happening in the world that the writer themselves is, is positing and, and sort of manifesting. Bill Cohan wrote an entire column the other day about his conversations with people on Wall Street um, and also based on his own 17-year experience as an M&A banker, looking at sort of what the industrial logic would be for a potential merger between Warner Discovery and NBC Universal. And to be clear, you know, those are conversations that are sort of happening in the abstract. We're not reporting that, you know, Brian Roberts and David Zaslav have been on the phone together. But this is something that bankers are talking about, the private equity guys are talking about, because it's the job of media dealmakers to have these conversations and think about these possible combinations. And so, you know, that's what we're doing at Puck here, too, is not just reporting on the news as it becomes official, but also bringing our readers into proximity with the thinking of the players in these worlds. What would it look like to have these two companies come together and what would be the thesis behind it? So one of the things that we we often get feedback about is the podcast. Um, as you may recall from a couple of months ago, got a lot of a lot of letters in when we had experimented with music and the B segments and things like that. What I love about Puck and what I love about this podcast is we're we're really building everything in in plain view of our readers and our listeners. So I wanted to have you talk about some changes and upgrades and experiments we've been doing with some of the segments on The Powers That Be. Yeah, in the spirit of pulling back the curtain and breaking the fourth wall, we have been experimenting with the template for the second half of the show. So when we relaunched The Powers That Be as a daily podcast, we first just had Peter talking to the puck journalists. And of course, that's great because Peter Hamby is you know, the elder millennial golden god of new media journalism. We love Peter to death, but we also wanted to tack on more content. We wanted even more conversations that were up to the minute. You know, this podcast drops at 3 a.m. Eastern every day. And sometimes we want to have an additional conversation about something that's late breaking that we can add on. So we introduced these B blocks and we often just had the journalists talking themselves, recording a segment, 
And we would add that on to the conversation that Peter had had earlier that day. And now we're trying something a little bit new. I have been tapped to do a, my sort of best Peter Hamby impression. We've taken those B blocks and now there's a little bit of back and forth where I am talking to those journalists. And we'd love your feedback. I, I, I don't know. Um, Alex, tell me, am I doing a good job? Are you going to keep me on? <laughs> Listen, no one is a direct one for one replacement for Peter Hamby. Let's Nobody. just like, let's be clear about that. That being said, you know, when I put on my consumer listener hat, I, I've really been enjoying your segments. I know that our listeners have strong opinions. So if you have a strong opinion about how we have structured the second half of our podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to fritz at puck.news. Feedback is a gift. That's why we call it Feedback Fridays. If you think this Ben Landy guy sucks and should not be interviewing anybody ever on a podcast ever again, just email Fritz. Fritz will filter accordingly. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's right. right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Please stop hogging the checks mix. And listeners, reach out and let me know who you'd like to hear from on one of my Friday segments. You can hit us up on social, Twitter, or reach out to Fritz at Puck.News. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 